Welcome to the Women in Diplomacy podcast. Today, we're discussing sustainability, corporate diplomacy, and climate. Our guest is Leah Seligman. She's director of Net Zero 2050 at the B Team. Hi, Leah. Hi, Kelsey. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, we're exploring a new realm of diplomacy, which I kind of like to define as corporate diplomacy. So I'm looking forward to having your help in shedding light on this. Can you tell us what is the B Team? So the B Team is a nonprofit that was co-founded by Richard Branson and Johan Zeitz, um, the, the former CEO of Puma. And the idea was to create a team of business leaders and civil society leaders working to reform business to be more aligned with sustainability, um, both social and environmental um, impacts. And so they, they came together realizing that while there are a number of fantastic business leaders out there who have really pushed the envelope on, on what's possible within a corporation, there was a need for a group to really have each other's backs and support each other. So there's 23 leaders. Um, all of them are incredible um, in their own right. Um, and have both personally and professionally dedicated their lives to, to shifting business towards more sustainable outcomes. Um, our leaders include a mix of people like Richard Branson and Johan Zeiss from the business world, but also people like Mary Robinson, Sharon Burrow, the general secretary of the ITUC, uh, Kathy Calvin, the head of the UN Foundation, and, and others. So I feel, in a sense, that it's time to think outside the box, especially in the realm of climate change. What you are talking about and what I feel the B team does is a form of diplomacy. Companies and corporations are already familiar with establishing relationships and kind of reaching across different sectors. And I think that now something like the B team is trying to encourage government to do the exact same thing. Am I, am I correct? And I'm also curious, why, why do we need this? So I think companies have been engaging in different forms of diplomacy across many, many issues for, for years. And you'll see engagement on whether it's a specific policy initiative or whether there's a UN agreement that's coming forward, companies engaging in varying degrees. What we saw in 2015 with the Paris Agreement, though, is that companies played a different role, and the business community as a whole played a different role than it had in past climate negotiations, where in the past you saw business sort of saying, well, government's going to sort it out, um, and once they give us a deal and some guideposts, then we will do what we do best, make money um, within, those, within that framework. Um, but there is a challenge when it comes to climate because with climate change, it, we're talking about a wholesale transformation of the entire economy. Right now, we have an economy that's based in fossil fuels um, and really greenhouse gases. And in the future, we need to completely decouple our economic growth from, from fossil fuels and from greenhouse gas. Uh, so, so there was a need for a clear business voice to come forward and say, yes, we need this. Yes, it matters. And yes, we have your back governments. If you're able to hammer out a deal, we are there to demonstrate how to achieve it. And we will bring lots and lots of investment and lots of innovation and new ideas and solutions to the table that will help the world transition from high carbon to low carbon. 
And so the difference that made a difference, I think, in Paris was that strong, clear, collective business voice calling for action. Um, and the B team played a role in getting our leaders, people like Paul Pullman and Richard Branson and Zheng Wei and a number of leaders to come together and to offer that clear voice saying, don't worry, business has got this. Give us the, give us the agreement, give us the framework, and we will deliver it. And that was what allowed us, I believe, one of the many things that allowed us, but a significant thing that allowed us to achieve that deal in 2015. And so you saw for the first time companies putting a concerted effort into having one collective voice and the formation of coalitions like the We Mean Business Coalition, which the B team is a founding member, which had a suite of asks that went to every single company that we could get it to. And you've seen that community with the clear ass coming forward and pushing forward evolve in the post-Paris world where um, right after the, the US election, we immediately were able to put out a letter um, calling on the U.S. administration to um, focus on continuing our transition to, to low-carbon USA. And at this point, have over a 1,000 companies that have signed on to that letter to say, business wants clarity, business wants climate action, and business wants to drive this clean energy revolution. Wow, this is such impactful work. I love kind of the innovation of applying things like economic incentives to diplomacy. And now I'm picturing the potential ramifications if we take this and apply this to other areas as well, um, where we do need diplomacy to step up so that the world can, can fall into place on some important stuff. So thanks for kind of giving us the ins and outs and truly an on-the-ground perspective of what is going on and this incredible case study of corporate diplomacy. So you are director of Net Zero 2050 at the B Team. Can you tell us a bit more about that? What is it? What does it mean? And what do you do as your job? Net Zero 2050 is an initiative of the B Team um, that we we rolled out in the lead up to Paris and has become our rallying cry for climate action. And basically, the goal is in the title. Um, we are seeking to accelerate a just transition to a net zero economy by 2050, and that is a huge goal and one that is necessary to stay within planetary boundaries. Um, when I say planetary boundaries, basically it's like what the earth can handle to keep sustaining life. Um, right now we're on trajectory for six degrees with business as usual. And that means in tr tremendous change has to happen in a very short amount of time. Um, and we're working with our, our partners and collaborators to not only peak global emissions by 2020, but to be at zero by 2050. So every day, what does that mean? It means that I get an opportunity to work with some truly inspiring, fantastic people across, um, across the global climate movement to, uh, to drive action. And my, my work itself is co-chaired by Mary Robinson, former president of Ireland, and by David Crane, um, my former boss and also the, the former CEO of NRG Energy. 
Uh, and between Mary and David, we have 10 other leaders that have raised their hands to say that climate is a critical priority for them. People including Oliver Bete, uh, the CEO of Allianz, uh, Paul Pullman, CEO of Unilever, Andrew Liveris, CEO of Dow, um, Sharon Burrow, the General Secretary of ITUC, Ngozi Okano-Iwila, who is the former finance minister of Nigeria, and a list of others um, that are really out in front on, on climate and sustainability and have uh, committed to using their collective voice to, to drive bold action on climate. And so there's, there's really three key initiatives for us right now. One is our Net Zero 2050 team, which is a group of businesses that have committed to achieving net zero greenhouse gas by 2050 or before. And this includes a number of our B team companies and, and some others. And we work closely with the We Mean Business Coalition to drive action, to share our stories, to be transparent in how we achieve those goals, and to advocate both um, publicly, as you'll see with things like the Low Carbon USA letter, but also behind the scenes with small conversations and quiet conversations to, to advocate for a net zero economy by 2050. Uh, the other two work streams, one is on just transition, and we have a close partnership with the um, International Trade Union Confederation, ITUC's Just Transition Center to create um, guidance on how a company can ensure a just transition. And when we say a just transition, what we're talking about is um, as you move from a fossil fuel-based economy to a clean energy economy, there's going to be jobs that are lost and jobs that are gained. But we want to make sure that this transition is intentional and thoughtful to take care of the workers and communities that have powered the economy to date and that may be adversely impacted as we as we shift to new forms of energy and, and other aspects that will go into a net zero economy. And so this is working closely to say, what is the role of a corporation in understanding how, how do you minimize the downside, the social downsides, and maximize the um, the benefits to communities and workers as we shift um, to net zero. And then the third area is a work stream that we've, we've just kicked off around climate competent boardrooms. And this is looking specifically at the boards of directors of companies and determining how to engage them in, in climate and what the fiduciary duty is of, of, those, of those directors in ensuring um, companies are managing a 1.5 degree scenario and transitioning their um, transitioning their 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 companies and value chains as quickly as possible to net zero. So speaking of collective voice, you are also organizing the 100 women climate march. Can you tell us about that? So it's actually the the People's Climate March on this Saturday, April 29th, and we are one of many, many organizations that are mobilizing to support this work. And one of the events that we will be supporting um, and that we're, that we're hosting in the lead up to the march is 100 Women for Climate Action, which will bring together a truly fantastic group of women um, all at the forefront of, of the climate movement, whether it's with government, business, frontline communities, unions, um, NGOs and any of the other places that women are already contributing to this climate solution. And we're very, 
it's really going to be a fun week, I have to say. But it will all culminate on on Saturday with our group marching together. And we invite everyone um, to come out and join us in D.C. or in a sister march around the country um, where we're going to, to have some of our B-team leaders, Richard Branson and Sharon Burrow, will be leading our contingent and will be joining a number of other really cool, cool folks to, to march for climate and stand up for climate justice and jobs. Yes. Amazing. Where can we find more info? It's peoplesclimate.org. Peoplesclimate.org is where you can find all the information about the march. Wow. Just, I'm so inspired and this is really dynamic work. So how did you come to this work? What is your background? What has your path been like? Well, I would say a lot of luck and some very interesting nature experiences have led me to to where I am today. Um, I, when I graduated from college, uh, the first thing I did was I moved to the Galapagos Islands in Ecuador, and I lived for a year and a half um, working for a fantastic NGO um, down there, uh, Fundacion Hatsun Sacha, and I was the the coordinator for their Galapagos Reserve, which I have to say to anyone graduating college, if someone tells you that they will pay you to live in the Galapagos, it doesn't matter if it's only five cents an hour or whatever it was, take them up on it. It really was incredible. Um, but while working there, I learned a thing or two about scale of impact and really which which scale spoke most to me. Um, I, I spent hours and hours, more hours than you can imagine with a machete planting in um, native endemic tree species and removing invasive species. And those hours slaving over the greenhouse could be undone in 15 minutes of a stray neighbor's pig taking out my trees. And so uh, when I left the Galapagos, I thought maybe I want to work at a slightly different scale. The the heartbreak of having my trees trampled by pigs might, might not be sustainable for me. And so um, Working there, I started to look around at what were some of the other ways that I could impact the issues that I cared about most. And for me, it's always been environment. It's always been environment. It's always been women. And um, so I had, by a lot of luck, I ended up working for a firm called Blue Sky Sustainable Strategies. And it was founded by a guy named Jib Ellison, who is a very, very cool guy. He, um, he started the Whitewater Rafting World Championships and had just this philosophy that if you looked at your business through the lens of sustainability, you were going to uncover huge amounts of untapped value. And so uh, working with Jib, I got to, first I started out as his assistant, which I was terrible at and um, learned quickly that that would not be the right role for me. But uh <laughs> when I shifted over after just a few months and a couple of really poorly booked trips, when I shifted over to the consulting side um, and found that I loved the work, it was so much fun to look at a business and to start thinking about where there were opportunities for sustainable value. And I had I got to work with Walmart on some of their supply chain issues, and I worked with Microsoft on their carbon footprint. Um, and I worked with Staples on a product um, packaging plan and just, you know, employee engagement plans. Um, but one of the things that Blue Sky did really, really well was systems change and thinking about these challenges, not in the silos of one 
one business's four walls, but how do they play throughout the system? And so when we looked at Walmart supply chain, we were convening all of Walmart suppliers to say, how can we achieve audacious sustainability goals? When we looked at Alcoa's challenge and need to, to increase recycled content, we came together with the entire recycling industry in the U.S. from waste haulers through retailers and consumer um, consumer facing brands to say, how do we collectively increase the U.S. recycling rate so that we can get more recycled content into the supply chain? And so that that lens was was really helpful, and it it shaped the way um, I've learned to tackle some of these sustainability challenges. And when you get to a challenge the of the size and scope and scale of of climate, you know that you really need systems change. Um, but back to Jib's roots on the river, one of the things that he did every year was bring together a really interesting collection of sustainability luminaries and business leaders uh, to go on an annual whitewater rafting trip. And um, I was lucky enough to meet my future boss on one of those trips, David Crane, uh, the CEO of NRG Energy, which is the largest independent power producer in the United States. And um, if you have never met David Crane, I highly recommend meeting David Crane. He is a life-changing kind of personality. And we um, we hit it off, and he invited me on to come and see some of NRG's operations. We got to go and check out um, Ivanpah, the largest thermal solar plant in the world in Las Vegas. And Bill Clinton was there, and we got to walk around with him. And then we um, got to see NRG was installing a number of solar facilities at NFL stadiums. So um, got to go and check out MetLife Stadium and go in a helicopter over it. Anyway, by the end of it, I was I was hooked. And I thought where I really want to work is is in the energy space. It's so critical to to what we're doing. You get to meet some cool people and um and here is a leader. I saw in David Crane a leader that really was leaning completely into the challenge, despite the fact that his business, um, NRG is the largest IPP in the U.S., was, you know, one of the top five emitters in the United States, was right at the center of that energy transition. And to see a, a CEO of a major energy company leaning into renewables and pushing as hard as he could to to quickly transition um, our energy system was incredibly inspiring. And that was what I wanted to do. So um, here, I guess it might be a place where I do a plug of advice for for people listening. But if you see someone you want to work for, and you respect, I would do whatever you can to, to get a chance to work for them. And so I um, was lucky enough that David was willing to take me on and I became the first chief sustainability officer for NRG. And had um, a really, and I think this is probably the first time we really went into the corporate diplomacy, as as you call it, um, but an opportunity to not just shape the internal strategy of the company, but also to think through how do we get our customers and the system around an energy company to to also evolve to embrace this new um, low low carbon um, energy system. And so that that was just a lot of fun. I got to build up a team and I got to um, work closely with David and with the management team of the company to to put in place a strategy. And ultimately, we set um, the we were the first in the energy sector to to set um, 
science-based targets, which are targets that for climate emissions reductions that align with the best science available um, and is a, is a really important piece of how we're going to transition our economy. And so um, NRG in 2014, we set um, our long-term goals, which was a 50% reduction in, in emissions by 2030 and a 90% reduction in emissions by 2050. And this is, this is a place where not only did it set the stage for us to engage on this topic at the national and international level, but it also really showed me the power of diplomacy in terms of how do you create a program that your entire company and stakeholder system and value chain system can get behind. And when you think about an energy company that at the time was emitting roughly 100 million metric tons of carbon per year, um, saying that they were going to go down to basically zero in a 35-year time frame, it was a big deal. And it was a big moment. It had serious implications for people throughout the business. And so we spent a year and a half talking to everyone and getting feedback and understanding how is this going to impact our coal suppliers? How would this impact the railroads? How would this impact our investors? Um, and, and really working working through that process. Um, and and through that, um, as I've said, David is a tremendous leader. He was approached um, by the B team to to join as a leader, and I helped bring him on as a leader. And when um, David left NRG, um, I was able to to make the shift over to the B team to to lead our climate work and to continue to work with a, a great leader. So, are you hopeful? Where are we now? Should we have hope going into the future? Is there still lots of work to do? Oh, I'm incredibly hopeful, and there is so much work to be done. So um, I think, you know, every day I wake up realizing how how far we've come and how much more we have to do. But when you think just isolated to just climate, if you think about where the world is today versus five years ago, we are in such a strong position to tackle this challenge even though we've had some political setbacks in the last year, there's more there's more political will than there's ever been when it comes to climate. And when I think about corporate sustainability, businesses went from having a CSR department, maybe, but more likely a foundation um, 10 years ago to now it's a sustainability is a major part of most companies' strategy. And it integrates into everything. It integrates on what they disclose. It's how they're making money. It's how they talk to their customers. It goes across the board. So um, I think this is this is a moment for tremendous hope. I think business has an opportunity to be a huge force for good and for um, creating a world that we're, we're all proud of. And we just have to keep on pushing as, as hard as we can every single day. What about for you personally in your journey? Were there ever times that you lost hope or kind of challenges that you encountered? So many challenges. <laughs> um, and I think that there probably have been some pretty rough days, but um, i trying to think of a good shareable example of that, but just, you know, for everyone to know that there, there have been a lot of challenges. But I, I think um, one day that was particularly hard was it was in the lead up to the the goals that I announced, and this was a a huge amount of work that um, was taken on by a lot of people across the company. And um, right 
two days before we were going to announce um, the goals, we we were dealt a, a setback from our investors and um, had to postpone the announcement. And that was a really hard day because we were so ready to go. And we had had, you know, we had all of the, the frequently asked questions filled out. I think it was like a hundred page document of frequently asked questions and, and all of this work had gone into it and having to sort of stand up the next day and tell people that I had been working so closely with it. No, we're, we're delayed um, for a bit. That was really hard, but that moment and as low as that felt was countered by the moment when we actually were able to announce because the announcement two months later was far stronger, far more powerful, much better planned than it ever would have been if we had gone ahead with the original date. And so I think um, there are always challenges. There's probably challenges that are, I think I've probably experienced challenges far greater than that, but that's one that, that stands out. Um, but you, you know, you, you never know what's going to happen and life deals you things professionally and personally that can really alter the way that you engage with your work. So, so making sure that you're, you have some resilience in you and are doing the things that you need to, um, to be able to deal with some hardship. What do you wish you had known maybe at age 20? What would you tell your younger self? Hmm. I think there are a few things. Um, first of all, to have a point of view and to be comfortable sharing it. Um, it took me far too long, I think, to realize that my perspective was different than others and that um, could add value to the conversation. So I had a boss, uh, a man named Glenn Lowe, who told me to, to always have a point of view and to always share that point of view. And that's not something that many one, young women get um, early on in their careers, but, but that helped me. I'm not saying that my points always landed, um, but to be able to challenge myself to contribute in a meeting, to speak up, to share my point of view, I think really advanced um, my career and helped me evolve my thinking so that I could um, uh, really contribute in a meaningful way to the conversations I was part of. So that's one. Two, I think knowing that you don't need to have the right answer, you can have the right process to get to that answer. And just recognizing that if you're the smartest person in the room, that's not a good thing. You always want to be surrounding yourself with people that can contribute and whose opinions you value and you want to be facilitating them to share their brilliance and collectively you'll get to a better outcome. Um, so, so that would, that's another piece of advice that I wish I had known. I think I, I wasted some time when I was younger trying to be right instead of trying to figure out what the, the best outcome was. I think also just to, there is something about having hope and having optimism that helps tackle these these great challenges. A lot of times, the day to day work is not glamorous. It's not, um, you know, it's it's sending emails, it's doing whatever. But having that focus on a greater mission and feeling that within the the group of people you can muster, you can actually make progress on that is is really important. So being optimistic and and hopeful and empowering others to share their views is a critical part of success.
thanks for listening to the Women in Diplomacy podcast. The theme song for this podcast is Misty Moses by the musicians Rodrigo y Gabriela. A very special thanks to Rubyworks Records in Dublin for allowing use of this song for educational purposes. For more information, check out theforeignpolicyproject.org. And thanks for listening.